Jesus, we just um, thank you for this day and for this space and these people that you've brought together, God, to just worship your great name. We just thank you that no matter how many people are in the room or how few, God, that um, that you are still just sovereign over all and you are just so worthy of our praise, Lord. We just um, we pray for those who aren't here today. We pray for Kelly and um, those who are traveling, God, and that you would just um, just lift them up and bring them back to us safely next week. Uh, we pray over Joseph today, God, and the word that he brings, and that um, you would just truly speak through him. In your name, amen. There's 101 different messages and sermons and, and <clears throat> lessons and whatnot that could start off by focusing on all the different things that people try to uh, bring into their lives in order to make them feel more fulfilled. Um, <clears throat> and I think part of the reason for that is because that's really, it's really fundamental to what it means to, um, <laughs> to follow this creator who built everything in perfection and then for us, you know, as a creation to kind of turn away from our creator. You know, it's kind of interesting that when you turn around and you look at the story of the fall of man, what's fascinating is that a lot of times we focus on the fact that, well, <clears throat> Eve was told not to eat from the tree of knowledge. And she did. And so she said. And, you know, all of that is is true, but I think it kind of neglects what, Eve actually did and what Adam actually did there in the Garden of Eden. Because you see, when you unpackage that story, what actually happens is the serpent asks Eve and says, would well, God really say that you couldn't eat from the tree? And Eve actually corrects the serpent and says, oh, God said I can't eat from the tree. And then what the serpent did is turned around and flip the script on her a little bit and and instead of focusing on what God had told her to do he took the focus off of that relationship between Eve and God and instead turned the relationship into Eve and Eve he turned the relationship into saying no this is what you could have look at how you could be you could be like this and it wasn't until it became something that was self-centered that Eve started to try to find fulfillment in something other than what God had given her that she actually fell to sin. And I think that's a very profound thing because when you look at our own society, <clears throat> many of the things that people will talk about are things that we kind of universally acknowledge. Yes, these can become vices in our life. We talk about money and we talk about popularity. We talk about having influence and authority and things like this. But we don't sometimes talk about other things that can become idols that maybe are not in and of themselves terrible. <clears throat> what about your sense of family? Can your family become an idol? You know, we read these, these verses in the scriptures that a lot of times you kind of describe as like they're very inconvenient verses because they challenge us to question what do we really believe where we see things about like, no, in order to love me, you have to hate your mother and you have to hate your father. And you see these things. And they're difficult to struggle with that, you know, what, what does that actually mean? Does God really want me to actually hate my family? Does he actually want me to do nothing other than exactly what he's told me to do and to just be a good little robot? Is that all there is to being a Christian, being a little soldier for Christ that just kind of follows orders? And 
that really kind of misses it too. But what we can see is that there are things that objectively as a society we look at and say these are good things. And not just society like evil, horrible, fallen society. But there are things that we acknowledge and say these are good pursuits that when taken too far can become vices. They can become things that suddenly start driving us away from God. You know, my pursuit of saying, well, I need to do this for my family. I need to do this because I have to be able to provide for my household. You know, these are all good things. But the problem is that when those things get in the way of the understanding that we have an identity with Christ, then suddenly you can see how the serpent can start using this thing that may seem objectively good and start twisting it and saying, right, but what about you? But what about, don't, don't, don't you want to have the best family? Don't you want to have the best career? Not because God has, has brought a family into your life and not because God has brought you into a career and into different you know, social circumstances and whatnot and not because God has put wealth into your life, but because think about what you could do with that wealth. Think about what you could do with that better family, with that family that's more popular or better at different, you know, whatever, extracurriculars or looked at better in, in society. Anything can turn into an idol. The tree of knowledge in and of itself was not a dirty thing. It was a beautiful thing that God had created. It was only when we started using it for our own selfish purposes. <clears throat> and we can see this actually replicated in our own lives when we start looking at all the things that people want to try to find fulfillment in. I think especially this is, this is useful as we get into the season of fall, right? Because it's September, so in my mind, I don't care what the calendar says, it's fall. Um, I am fully in support of it hitting September 1st and then seeing all the candy corn in the store and putting up my decorations and everything. Um, so I think it's a great season and you know there's a lot of reasons to like it. You know, obviously there's a lot of good tasty things. There are these, you know, we start getting to the feelings of thankfulness before we get into Christmas where we start talking about charity. So it's kind of this this wonderful feel-good time. And probably the best and most glorious part of the entire season is the fact that college football has returned. And I I appreciate college football even to the extent that, believe it or not, I actually wrote uh, for a um, blog for a while that was a, a decently sized uh, NC State sports blog. Um, and I just, I love everything about um, the, the whole college athletics scene. Um, so that being said, uh, what is interesting is how you see fans act when it comes to uh, their program, specifically when it comes to how they treat their coaches. Because what you end up saying, well, let me put it this way, uh, because it's, it's, it's an example where I can pick on a school that NC State beat, um, even if by accident, so I can enjoy this for a second. So NC State was playing East Carolina uh, a couple weeks ago. And as we're playing East Carolina, uh, I was kind of reminded about the fact that this is a program that some years they're amazing and some years they're complete trash. But what it seems like is causing this cycle is that they'll get a coach in there and they'll build up the program to a certain point and then all of a sudden they start going to bowls. They start getting ranked and they start doing that. Well, they'll have like one down season and the reality is this isn't a school that's been good for decades and decades. So, you know, you're going to, once you start going up, you're going to have a couple little, you know, bounces down, right? Well, they experience those bounces down and all of a sudden people start going, well, wait, but we were just ranked 13th in the nation last year. Why aren't we going to the college football playoffs this year? Like, thinking, like, I need more. I need more. So they, so it's almost like 
there can't be an amount of like being pleased with kind of the fact that you're you're still going up and being thankful. I need more and I need more. I need more. So what they do is they end up inevitably firing the coach and then they get a new person in and then they boom start back at the beginning and then they end up going back up and then starting back and they're kind of stuck in this cycle as a program. Uh, and, and and a lot of times I feel like different things in our own life will kind of lead to this exact same thing. Uh, at least when it comes to things that we pursue, maybe things like careers hopefully are like a little bit more stable sometimes. Um, I know if you do like entrepreneurial stuff, you may go like, no, it's not stable at all. But, um, but you know, it, it's some certain things in our life. We want to be a little bit more stable, but sometimes, especially when it comes to hobbies, I think a lot of times, especially in a, uh, what I would call like a, a non Bible belt culture, kind of like for a lot of Virginia is a lot of times churches feel this way where, you know, people get into this thing where they want more and more and more, you know, they feel like they're getting some of the things that they want out of whatever their sports, uh, uh, participation is or this club or activity or this church or whatever and they hit a point where they go well i feel like i'm not getting what i want and then boom they go back and they they kind of start over they go find something else they're trying to fill this 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 desire this sense of satisfaction that they have with all these other things around them and they're never actually getting satiated and what it leads to is this uh kind of emotional gluttony so to speak where we're trying to sit here and cling on to more good experiences or more sense of accomplishment or more sense of satisfaction. And the reality is that if what we're trying to find our joy in is that sense of satisfaction and that sense of being satisfied and having enough, we're never going to get there. Uh, one thing that was impressed upon me very early working my, my day job was that, you know, working around so many different um, scientists and engineers, uh, I mean, some, some of the people at least their titles, you know, they have these things where they're like the chief whatever for the for the entire Navy, you know, where they're supposed to be the smartest person in this one thing, you know. And what I'm finding out is that no matter how smart you are or how good at your job you are or anything like that, there's always going to be somebody who's better. And so if we try finding our sense of joy and satisfaction out of the fact that I've attained enough money, I've attained a big enough house, or I've gotten enough popularity, or this thing I'm dedicated to, a, a church or a business or whatever, is, is stable enough or popular enough, if we try clinging onto these things for our sense of joy, we're never truly going to get there because there's always going to be something more that we can cling on to. I think about the fact of, you know, that, that, that Solomon was clearly not satiated by all of the things in his life, which is really remarkable because when we think of Solomon, most of the time we think about the fact that he's wise. Sometimes we think about the fact that he wrote a very dirty book called Song of Solomon. Sometimes, you know, we think about the fact that he had all this wealth. But really every facet of his life by and large was pretty locked up I mean he really had a, had a great <laughs> a great life um, you know not not without its own share of tragedies everything obviously for any of you who you know kind of know happened to his kids and, and all that but you know still he kind of had it all together uh, you go to second Chronicles uh, chapter 8 and you can see a lot of this um, and I'm not gonna you can if you go to second Chronicles 8 you can kind of follow along with it but I'm not gonna read all of them but the you what you end up saying is that look he uh, had this great building project, right? You know, he's building, uh, finishing up uh, the temple, the temple that, you know, was kind of revealed to his father. And so he did these great works in verse one, we see. He had a thriving economy. Um, 
it, it's you know he he had garnered all this wealth for the nation of Israel. So when you talk about like the pursuit of organizations, I guess you would say in in our parlance, that's kind of what Solomon had with the nation of Israel. Was like his organization he was trying to help build up and everything was stable. You can see that in verses two through six. Uh, he solidified like the political empire. You see in verses seven through eight these different examples of how you know he achieved great power and great repute with the other leaders that were in the area. And that in and of itself was no short, ta- uh, no, no small task. One of the things we covered uh, last week was that uh, David himself, you know, as much as we uh, think about, you know, the different stories with him, we don't realize that really until David, the uh, covenant of the promised land really hadn't totally come to fruition where it had all been taken by Israel. Uh, we think of Joshua going through and, and, and defeating and, 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 and you know subduing a lot of these people. But it really truly wasn't until you go past Joshua and Judges and Saul until you get to David that suddenly there was a kingdom that was a stable entity that was for God's chosen people. And so... You know, you, 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 what ends up happening is that as Solomon steps into that role, he all of a sudden becomes not just, I have a stable kingdom, but now I have a respected, a renowned kingdom in this area. Uh, so he achieved all of that. He had tremendous wealth, and it's hard to wrap our minds around the amount of money, and not just state money, but personal money that King Solomon had. You know, some of the things that we end up seeing in here is that every year King Solomon received over 25 tons of gold. So that's in 2 Chronicles 9, chapter 13. Now, I did some math because I like math. And, you know, so when I was looking up the price of an ounce of gold, uh, it was $1,690, technically $1,697 and some cents. I rounded it to 98. Forgive me. So that was on Tuesday night uh, when I was sitting here, you know, putting a lot of stuff together. So if we look at 25 tons, 25 tons is approximately a lot of ounces. So uh, somewhere around 32,000 ounces. So what that means is that each year, personal, this was just in the gold, just in the gold, he was getting. $54 $54 million a year in these shipments of gold that were coming to him. Now, in addition to that, we also read in here that he also had these different shields and chariots and all that. And you got to think of it this way. Having a chariot in this day and age was similar to a, a, a nation having like an aircraft carrier or a battleship. It was, and I didn't plan that out, but I have battleships on my ship, on my shirt. Uh, so, uh, so that being said, it was this, this, this symbol of great national prestige to have these. Well, he had $147 million in, in just the gold on the shields, $24 million in chariots and horses that he would sell, and he had an unknown quantity or an undocumented quantity of golden utensils and a, a, a massive golden throne that was said to be unlike any other anywhere else. Silver was said, because you notice all this is gold, 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 right? Silver was worthless. They There, there are actually different instances of the Bible we have of indications of people using silver in things like road work and stuff because it's just viewed as being so worthless. There was just such a stupidly large amount of wealth. 
by some indications. Oh, and all this also, oh, by the way, another thing that was common in this area is your history lesson for today. Very common in this day and age for leaders to just send gifts to each other just kind of because. Uh, this was something you did for diplomatic reasons. It was something you did for kind of personal reasons because you had a lot of petty kings floating around all over the place. So people would send each other gifts. And so you actually end up having these very odd uh, records and like uniform tablets and things like that of people turning around and saying, ah, so-and-so, my brother and my great king, my affections for you are this and this and this and this. Uh, and, and then there's one instance of, of one of these kings uh, after heaping all these uh, 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 praises onto another individual turning around and saying, you did not send me any gifts, and I was very offended at that mo at, uh, in that moment. Have I not given you gifts? Do you not love me anymore? And like, it's this weird, almost like teenager quarrel thing going on where he's mad because he didn't give him gifts. Uh, and then he goes back into saying like, oh, but you're a great king and all that. Uh, and it's because these gifts were expected. So King Solomon, as the leader of this now nation that had taken this God's chosen land, was getting tons of gifts, uh, not just of, of metals and things like that, but also of exotic animals from all over the ancient world uh, of, you know, unknown worth in today's money. But by some estimates, uh, different historians and economists have estimated that at the peak of Solomon's personal wealth, he would have had $2 trillion. It's just an unfathomable amount of money. Individuals were in my office the other day just talking about Elon Musk's personal wealth and saying, if I tried to spend that much money in a lifetime, how would I spend it? And they came up with all these different things that they would do it on. And then they uh, said, okay, how much are those things worth? And they added it up and it didn't even come close to spending like the personal wealth. And that is just a fraction of what Solomon had. So that being said, he had everything. He had he had wives. It's a good or a bad thing. He had multiple ones. He had, you know, obviously he had the respect of his peers. He had political stability. He had economic stability. He had personal wealth and possessions. He had everything he could personally ask for. And yet, what we see in Solomon is somebody who's utterly unimpressed with all of the things of this world. In Ecclesiastes 1, verses 2-11, Absolutely futile, says the teacher. Absolutely futile. Everything is futile. What does a person gain for all his efforts that he labors at under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets. Panting, it hurries back to the place where it rises. Gusting to the south, turning to the north, turning, turning, goes the wind, and the wind returns in its cycles. All the streams flow to the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place where the streams flow, they flow again. All things are wearisome, more than anyone can say. The eye is not satisfied by seeing, or the hearer filled by hearing. What has been is what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Can any can one say about anything, look, this is new? It has already existed in the ages before. There is no remembrance of those who came before, and of those who will come after their and of those who will come after, there will also be no remembrance by those who follow them. There's so many different things in there where you can see Solomon stating the fact that there's no feeling this emotional gluttony that we all feel, feel to, uh, you know, 
act as if we kind of have it all together. Uh, you know, talking about the fact that, you know, and I love how he says there in verse 7 that all the streams flow to the sea, yet the sea is never full. Because I think that perfectly describes what you see so many of us in our society trying to do. We have so many things. We have so many opportunities. If you want to sit here and get involved in the political scene of Bowling Green, I don't know why you would, but if you wanted to do that, you can certainly do it. And you can achieve the highest levels of influence you want. Is that going to be enough? Are you going to be sitting here one day on, you know, when you're breathing your last breath saying, you know what, that made this whole thing worth it? Even when you think about your family, the sad reality is that we have ups and downs with our families. It's not something that's embarrassing or somehow, you know, degrading to state the fact that, you know, sometimes families have their issues. And so when we sit here and try to say, you know what, well, I will find my satisfaction in what my family is doing. Well, okay, but is that really where you want to find your total sense of self-worth? Do you want your your total measure of self-worth to be only what has been accomplished to this world by those that you have a blood relation to. Is that as glorious as things get? And I think what you end up seeing is that there is no amount of satisfaction and approval that is going to cause us to be individuals who truly feel satiated. We want more. We want more even in a loving way when we start talking about things like families. We want more for our kids. We want more opportunities for them. You know, there are no things that I wouldn't want to give to my kids to help them succeed. I can remember having this moment. It was one of these kind of stupid Hallmark moments where in my mind I was like, you know, but this is going to be one I'm going to remember where I was sitting here holding Ezra and when I was holding Ezra, uh, waiting for Meredith to come in to uh, put him down for bed, he uh, had noticed that we had these decorations that we actually put up for one of Phoebe's birthdays. <clears throat> and this decoration kind of looks like a like a globe thing, one of these like kind of paper lantern things. It's like a ball, uh, but his his room is decorated like space, right? So he has all this space stuff everywhere, um, and hoping he'll grow up like Daddy and be an aerospace engineer, but be better at it and not go work for the Navy. Um, so you know, as he's sitting here, we've got this little round decoration. We put it in the center of the room because it's yellow. It kind of looks like a sun, right? So he kind of put it in there, and he's reaching for this little thing, right? So I like hold him up a little bit more so that he can reach it and grab it. And it's like, I hated myself as soon as I said it, but I stopped and I was just like, I'm going to help you reach whatever star you want to reach. And it was stupid, but it's exactly how I felt. I was like, I will do anything to help you get what you need to get. But the reality is I know I'm not always going to be able to be there. I'm not going to be able to be there. I haven't been the perfect father so far. Uh, so I know that I'm never going to be able to reach that level that's going to make me feel truly satisfied that I did everything humanly possible to give them everything and provide them everything and then see them succeed and go, ah, yes, I did it perfectly. That's never going to happen. Perfection is, is never part of the equation. So that's one of the reasons why you see Solomon himself get to the end of this book of Ecclesiastes where he talks about all these things you could enjoy and come to this one conclusion. Ecclesiastes 12, 13. Fear God and keep his teachings, for this is for all mankind. This is the only conclusion he comes to when he thinks about all the different things. He goes through an entire book of talking about popularity and wealth and power and influence and, and, and family and all the other things that we could try to fill our hearts with, recognizing that none of those things will ever fill the deep chasm of what our emotions require. And so the only conclusion he comes to is that all there's left for us is this, to fear God and keep his teachings. 
for this is for all mankind. And especially the end of that verse, if you didn't catch it, is worded in such a way to say, this is for all mankind, meaning this is what has been left for all mankind. This is what God has done for all mankind, is he has provided himself and he has provided his wisdom for us. This is what will cause us to be fulfilled. And this is what will cause us to understand that, you know, we don't have to be good enough. We don't have to have the perfect family or the perfect church or business. We don't have to have the perfect sports teams or, or whatever. We don't have to have the perfect anything because none of that stuff's going to be sufficient. At the end of the day, the only thing that's going to be sufficient, the only thing that's going to be enough is going to be the presence of God in our lives. And the thing that we have uh, academic knowledge of that Solomon did not is of the person of Jesus Christ and what Jesus Christ would ultimately do in our lives. The fact that he would be the physical manifestation of that thing that would be the all-sufficient Savior that would meet the all-sufficient need in our hearts. The only thing that could quench our hunger for what our joy requires. Now, whenever we get into these conversations about God being enough and about you know, needing to focus on what God has in our lives, it's, it, it almost comes across as if what we're saying is, therefore, every other pursuit in life is wrong. And that's kind of like prima facie, that's not right. You know, clearly God calls other individuals to do labor. There are things that people do. You look at the fact that there is evidence that even after the disciples themselves ended up leaving what they did and following on to Jesus, there, there's evidence to imply that some of the things we see in Jesus' ministry were kind of enabled by the fact that, you know, the disciples kind of still had maybe some of the vestiges of the, occupationally the things they did in the past. Uh, I saw, you know, one thing that was explaining that the boat that Jesus uses when he's, when he's preaching to the thousands and he has to get on the boat to get off of shore so he has enough space to talk to everybody, that that boat may have been one of the fishing boats that hadn't been sold or gotten rid of by the disciples. So in that sense, you see that clearly there's not this idea that you have to just you know divest yourself of everything else. Go and get that award-winning bass if you want. That's fantastic. It's awesome to go do that. I one time had a youth come up to me after a lesson very similar to this, and he asked me this, and it was it was it was one of these things you hear a teenager say, and like you almost want to snicker a little bit, not at them, but just because like you kind of realize like how much sense it makes in a weird way. But he said, "So is God saying I shouldn't spend any time playing basketball because that doesn't like directly focus on Him?" and it was kind of funny because like you could, there was actually like this look of worry in his face, like he was sinning by playing basketball. And I said, "No, absolutely not. Go do what you like. Go do what you want to do. God gave you these skills, like God." And I didn't word exactly like that because I didn't want to get that big of a head and think like I have divine gifts from God on the court. But like. You know, God gave you a, a put placed you in a certain position in a society, in a place, or brought you to different societies to be able to enjoy certain things. So go enjoy them. Uh, the way that's put in the Bible is that these are blessings from God, and so they're they're good. Uh, they're to be enjoyed. We see even in Ecclesiastes this book where Solomon himself is saying, "Don't focus on all these things," and yet he says in a couple of different ways this. Probably one of my favorite little like non-serious tidbits in the Bible. Uh, Ecclesiastes 5 verses uh, 18 through 19. Here's what I have seen to be good. It is appropriate to eat, drink, and experience good in all the labor one does under the sun. During the few days of his life, 
uh, God has given him, because that is his reward. Furthermore, everyone to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also allowed him to enjoy them. Take his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is a gift from God. If there's one verse I can get behind, it is a verse that is saying, eat, drink, for these are blessings from God. Eat, drink, and enjoy your toil, is the way that, you know, I, I think the, the King James puts it. Uh, that's something I find incredibly comforting because, I mean, again, it lets you know that it's okay to enjoy things. Uh, clearly, Jesus himself had times where he was just hanging out with his disciples. Was that Jesus being slothful? The Pharisees certainly thought so. They certainly accused him of these things. But yet, Jesus understood that these are things that are here to enjoy, so enjoy them. Just don't find your fulfillment in them. Understand that all of these things are here to enjoy, but enjoyment only goes skin deep. It doesn't actually fill what the heart needs in order to, to, to satisfy its hunger. You can see Solomon kind of start implying this there in verse 20 when he finishes this up. So read the last couple of words there in verse 19 first. Uh, this is a gift from God. Verse 20, for he does not often consider the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy of his heart. And clearly this is being written in a very kind of flowery, poetic kind of way. But what's being said right there is that this individual is enjoying these things because ultimately his life and the destiny of his life resides with God. And he understands that what he is here for and what he is here to do, his sense of meaning and satisfaction and purpose and mission, all comes from God. And so these other things he can enjoy because he is putting God first, because he is placing what God has asked them to do above all other things. So, so long as we can do that, enjoy these other things. You know, this is one of the reasons why, and I understand that there are many reasons for individuals at a personal level to eschew off different, different, you know, uh, uh, things that can be easily become vices, things like alcohol and whatnot. But you know what? This is why I don't have a big problem with, uh, you know, I went out with some people and they, they, they kind of made a comment about uh, uh, having a beer in front of like, you know, Pastor Joseph. I was like, go have a beer. I'll probably have one too. It, it's fine. Enjoy these things in your life because God has given you the ability to enjoy these things. But do not let these things become your God. Just because alcohol has become a dirty word with some people and people have had negative experiences doesn't mean there aren't many other things that society celebrates that can't become just as bad of a vice. And I'm not just talking about the devil's lettuce. There are many other things when we start talking about our pursuits and our passions. The number of times I, I put something online the other day that was uh, that, that said something along the lines of, if you feel you know the drama of your church more than you know your Jesus, then you're doing something wrong. And so in that way, really what I'm getting at is that even the drama in the business of your church can become your alcohol. You, become, you can become addicted to the things that are inside of your institution. And in a sense, that actually becomes more dangerous than something that's like an external vice because this is one that directly sits on top of your understanding of God. So you can quickly fool yourself into thinking, I have this deep and personal relationship with God because look at how involved I am in the business of the church. Not understanding that Jesus Christ was really involved with the business of the synagogue. He was involved with embracing beggars and with healing people and showing love and compassion 
to other individuals. That was the business of Jesus Christ, not the business of the institution. This is one of the reasons why much of the chagrin of many ministry leaders and pastors and whatnot, we don't see a lot of verses from the mouth of Jesus Christ and how the structure and operations and, standard and SOPs of the church should actually be conducted. All these things we've had to create because that wasn't of concern to God. Even things that are the most noble of pursuits, our ministry, our mission, our church, our family, uh, these are all things, senses of charity, when taken to an extreme, can become a vice just as destructive, if not more destructive, than something that's often derided by society like alcohol. But yet these are things we let slip by because other people will pat you on the back as you do them. So if you sit here and you pour everything you have into a particular social organization, something like the Masonic Lodge or Moose's Club or Ruritans or whatever, something, some group that's a good group, that does good things for people, people will pat you on the back and say that is very charitable, that's awesome that you do that. And that's why it becomes so much harder for us as Christians to maintain that focus to say, I need to be willing to keep God first. I need to understand that no matter how much approval I get because of the things I do or the things I have around me that the world wants to celebrate, I will never have my thirst quenched. The only thing that will th that will quench that thirst is understanding that Christ is on the top of everything. That Christ is number one in my life and everything else goes second. So, that being said, one of the things that sometimes it becomes a struggle when we start talking about being satisfied is the fact that the world is not all rainbows and gumdrops. That there are lots of pains and, and, and lots of suffering that takes place. We can see it throughout the Bible that there are people who end up dealing with all these negative things around them. And I think that's one of the reasons why people just try to grab other things from the world and shove it into their hearts to say, okay, well, I can feel better. Because the reality is we experience a tragedy. We experience something that is inconvenient or makes us angry or makes us feel like a lesser person. And we can very easily sit there and say, okay, well, now I feel like I have this gaping hole in me. And because the gaping hole came from the world, I need to try to plug it with things from the world because that's going to make it better. It's kind of like saying I had this thing in the world that I thought was going good in my life, that it made me feel wanted and loved and cared for, and it broke apart. And because it's now broken apart, I want to put it back together as kind of the world had it before when it was all good, not understanding that maybe our faith was in the wrong thing to begin with. Sometimes I think this is actually what pain and suffering actually teaches us. There's actually a great wisdom that can come out of even our trials and our afflictions. What suffering in different situations, physically, emotionally, whatever, actually teaches us is the limit of ourselves. We start understanding that we are a limited person. I mean, if we could do it all, if we, if we knew everything and we were capable of all things, then the reality is we wouldn't be in whatever suffering situation we're in now. We would have avoided it. We would have mitigated it. We would have, uh, uh, whatever, just a, a not dated that girl in the first place, if I feel like I'm speaking from personal experience. Uh, like, you, you know, you would have just avoided that entire set of circumstances and never dealt with it. Um, but we can't. And in situations where there was absolutely nothing that we could have done, then we find ourselves in the middle of it going, well, there's nothing I could have done and there's nothing I can do now. 
we understand that we are finite individuals. And this is one of the reasons why we see Paul so often in his own life looking at his own weaknesses and then almost putting those on a pedestal and celebrating these weaknesses and these trials and afflictions he's going through because in those trials he is forced to acknowledge the fact that no matter how many mission trips he goes on and no matter how many people he brings to Christ, he understands that he is still insufficient and that Christ is still fully sufficient. And that is the thing that he can celebrate in. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9-10, through 10, we read this. But he, Jesus, said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will most gladly boast in all the more about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and in difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That phrase in there is something that sounds so nice, but it's so difficult to put it into practice to say that for when I am weak, then I am strong. To understand that taking hold of the fact that we are finite people and that we can't do it all and that Christ can, that is the true pathway to being satisfied. That is how we can truly be content with our lives. And it doesn't mean that we can't continue pursuing all the other things that God has put in front of us, but it is to say that we acknowledge the fact that none of those things are enough. The popularity is never going to be enough. The wealth is never going to be enough. These other things that we want to fit into that God-shaped hole in our hearts are never going to be enough. But fortunately, He is. I'm reminded of the words of John the Baptist when some of John the Baptist's disciples were coming up to him and saying, hey, uh, Jesus is over there, and he's getting a lot of disciples are coming to him, and they're seeing the, 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 the acts he's doing and the things he's hearing, the things he's saying, and they're going over there, uh, and they're not coming to you anymore, John, so what should we do about this? Should we, should we intervene, or should we try to, try to somehow kind of stave off the, the movement of people over there to Jesus Christ? And John's response was that, for him to increase, I must decrease. Sometimes we can do that voluntarily. Sometimes the world forces us to do that involuntarily. And it's very easy whenever pain happens in our life to look at it and say, well, where's God in this? And sometimes I think when we do that, it's because we're looking for God in the world. We're looking for God in the circumstances and in the situation to somehow fix itself, to somehow snap its fingers and make everything go back to the way that it was before everything seemed like it was awful and chaotic. But the reality is that where God is in the tragedy is oftentimes it's, it's above it, it's beyond it. It's an understanding that God is the thing that's going to get us to the other side. If you're looking for a God in the wreckage, you're not going to see it. God is beyond the wreckage trying to pull us out. That is where God is in our tragedies, and that's where God is in our, in, in our, in our, in our, in our trials and our tribulations that we go through. And so what do we get from all of this? Well, what we get from all of this is the fact that Christ is enough. Everything else is not. It's something that we say time and time and time again in church, but yet it seems like it's so hard to actually put it in practice when we're faced with one of these situations where we have to choose in between something that means a lot to us and Christ. That's when it becomes real. But in those moments, the only thing that's really going to help us to be able to overcome our temptations or our aversions to doing things that are inconvenient or uncomfortable or unpopular is going to be understanding that no matter what other thing it is that I'm wanting out of this life, 
that may make me fearful of actually pursuing Christ, those things are not going to make me feel fulfilled. If I gain all the acceptance, if I conform perfectly with what other people want, I'm never going to feel like I'm truly whole. Because the reality is that as an individual who's accepted Christ in my life, I've been made a new creation. I'm part of the body of Christ. And the body is never going to feel like it's comfortable if it's still remaining a part of the world's body. It's only going to be comfortable if it is becoming a functional part of that body of Christ. And so here's where we get the application of this entire lesson. is an understanding that if we're hurting, God is enough to get us through it. If we're anxious, then God is enough to stay our hearts and to stay our hands. If we're hungry for more accolades and and, and victories and, and wealth, then Christ is enough to make us happy and pleased with the blessings that we have. And if we feel like we're lost and that we're riddled with guilt over the past or, or anything that, that we've, we've done or that we've played part in, he's enough to be able to heal whatever that wound is in our hearts. Christ is enough in every facet of our lives. All that it takes of us, which is simple to understand but hard to do, is to place Christ on top of everything else. So the challenge for us today is that as we look at our lives and as we look at the different things that compete for our sense of, of dedication to Christ's calling, no matter what that is, uh, we have to be willing to choose Christ. If that means talking to people that it's inconvenient to talk to, then talk to those people. Um, if it means doing some work we don't want to do, it means doing some work. If it means serving a, 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 a charity or a ministry uh, or, or starting something new, then it means doing that without any fear of how it may come back on us or what it may take away from us or what it may deny from us. Because the world can't take away what God didn't give. It's a lyric that rings true. So that should be our challenge as we go through our lives. And as we go through the next several weeks, we'll dig into this a little bit further. But what I want you all to think about and to look for opportunities to apply to your life is how can we allow Christ to demonstrate his sufficiency to us in all the different ways that we live? How can we live our lives in a way where with our actions, with our thoughts, and with our, our decisions that we make, we acknowledge that he truly is enough? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time that we have together. And, and and God, we pray that you would help us to understand that you truly are sufficient, that we don't need all of the other all the other frills and accoutrements that the world wants to try to offer us out of life. That if we have if we have much, that you're enough to keep us satisfied and to keep us happy. That if we have very little, you're enough to keep us keep us satisfied, to keep us contempt. If we are dealing with great victories that, that, that you're enough, that we don't need to heap the praise and the glory onto ourselves, and that if we're dealing with some sort of some sort of defeat or some sort of trial, that that you're enough to be able to pull us out of it. Help us, God, in all the ways that we live and all the ways that we act to 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 live in a way that that is indicative of a life that sees you as being enough. Help us to avoid the, the temptations to turn around and focus on ourselves and, and help us to also be discerning, to be able to understand where there are things that maybe in and of themselves, things that you've created and you place in our lives, but that maybe we want to take just a little bit too far. Help us, God, to keep our, our focus and to, to, to be disciplined, to have discernment, and to have the courage to be able to 
act with the faith of your sufficiency even when it's inconvenient. We pray all these things in your son's precious and holy name. Amen.